honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Awesome. So sh- welcome to the Strange on Purpose podcast. I'm Izzy, your co- your host today, actually. My co-host is not with me tonight, but um, I'm very, very excited to have on Jay from Complex uh, on the Strange on Purpose podcast. Thanks for jumping on with me today, Jay. Nah, it's my pleasure, man. I appreciate you. So I actually had lunch with Jay um, two weeks ago now, and we had probably, if I would have recorded that damn lunch, we would have had probably the best podcast episode ever. Um, but here we are trying to to redo the entire thing to see if we can get the same the same conversation going. So well, I drank um, I drank like four Red Bulls, man. I'm I'm let's lying. go, let's go. <laughs> I got my Lacroix in. Let's go. Um, but I appreciate you. I, I think um, everybody at this point is wondering like. We're going to have your title and then it, and everything in the um, podcast but in the description, but I just want to give you the floor to introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Yes, yeah, so um, I am the newly anointed EVP of uh, people and culture. Congrats. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, now I got to earn it, but yeah, basically what I uh, oversee is uh, HR people operations, um, recruiting and facilities while also advising with organizational development. So for, you know, any non-HR people here, I'm, I work hand in hand with the uh, leadership team, the CEO, uh, president and other uh, stakeholders just to kind of shape our organizational structure, take a look at like what's working from a workflow perspective, from departmental structure perspective, and help make some key decisions so that we can work more efficiently and effectively. Um, And then I'm responsible for the internal culture here at Complex, just making sure everyone's happy. That's my job is to make everybody happy all the time. It's impossible, but I try. And then, you know, the recruiting aspect of things, making sure we get the right people in the door that, you know, fit the culture and, you know, what we're trying to accomplish and have the right attitude. And then, um, you know, making sure everything runs, man. That's my job. I call myself the the Winston Wolf of uh, uh, Complex, man. I'm a problem solver. That's what I do. You got a problem, you call me, I help fix it. I love that description, man. That's honestly, I feel like a lot of people at this point are probably saying, "How the hell do I get that job?" Um, That's dope. (laughs) Yeah, I'm Um, I'm asking myself the same goddamn question every day: How the hell do I get this job? But nah, man, uh, it was a series of uh, interesting, you know, um, decisions and you know, fork roads uh, in my life where you know um, that led me to this point, but. Definitely wasn't a traditional background and a traditional career path, but, um, you know, it's something that I, you know, uh, I worked hard for. Um, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, would I be in HR? Uh, probably would have said hell no, but, um, yeah, uh, here we are, man. It's, it's an interesting uh, journey, man. You gave me some of that journey last time I, or last time we chatted. Um, so if you don't mind, let's get into it. Like, how'd you, if you want to give us a short story, how'd you get into your position you're in today? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'll give the truncated version cause I've told this story uh, before, but essentially, you know, grew up in Brooklyn, joined the army at 19, right after nine 11, did about, you know, six years in the military, came out in my mid-20s, didn't go to college until I was like 26, 27. Uh, basically, what happened was I was working a lot of jobs out of the, the Army, and 
Uh, one thing led to another where I got a job as a doorman on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It was a union building, and two weeks into the job, they voted me the union shop steward. Uh, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, but I negotiated two collective bargaining <laughs> agreements um, and kind of learned on the job. And then I started going to school because uh, for organizational management because I wanted to uh, uh, become a union delegate, man. I was trying to be Jimmy Hoffa and shit. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, a uh, I got a fortuitous, uh, you know, email one day from a old tenant that used to live in the building that I got to know really well. And he was like, hey, I own an ad agency and uh, my HR person isn't working out. I know you're going to school for organizational management. Are you interested in the career path? And uh, I took him up on it, and that's how I got started in uh, the ad uh, agency world. And, you know, worked for four years for him, got a, you know, a, a Harvard education on how ad agencies worked. And then uh, I moved on to another agency that, you know, really catapulted my career, laundry service, uh, where... You know, we were doing a lot of uh, social media marketing for uh, Fortune 500 uh, companies. We used to, we still run uh, Jordan Brand Social, Hennessy, T-Mobile. And, um, you know, we went from 50 to 500 people, grew that uh, agency and made AdAge uh, top 10 two years in a row while I was there. Um, and that kind of you know, put me on the map, made a name for myself. And then, uh, you know, something, uh, you know, uh, Complex had an opening and we started a sister company uh, called Cycle to compete with Complex. And, um, you know, I started mm -hmm. poaching people from Complex. That's how I got on the radar here. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, it was kind of like, you know, can't beat them, join them situation. So. Yeah. Uh, one day I get a text from Rich Antonello. He's like, Hey, we should talk. And I'm like, word, we should. <laughs> and, you know, Rich is a cat from Brooklyn, just like me. We really think alike. Um, the similarities is, you know, amazing. Um, he's a little more outspoken on Twitter than I am, but, <laughs> um, me and him really click, man. I love him to death. So it felt like a natural progression, especially for who I am personally, you know, everybody knows me for being a low head and, you know, I, I love sneakers. I'm really passionate about music and hip hop, especially. And, you know, complex kind of touches on all those things. So, yeah, uh, it was just a natural fit and, you know, a place where I could be myself, but also be a professional and do my job. It, it was, you know, it, I, I don't think there is a company out there that would be a more better fit. A, a more perfect fit for me. Yeah, that's dope, man. I love that story, and I'm I'm glad that you you encaptured it the same way that uh, the the same way that you did the first time I heard it. So that's so dope. I think what's really cool about the entire thing is the fact that you're you're essentially in charge of, like you said before, you're in charge of making sure everyone's happy uh, within the organization. And complex is its own beast, right? How many how many people do you guys have on staff? Uh, about three fifty full time, and you know, countless freelancers. Yeah, and I, I mean that's that's nuts. How do you how do you go about managing three hundred and fifty people on a day to day basis? I mean, you know, I joked earlier. You can't make everyone happy, but you have to make the decisions that's going to make the vast majority happy, right? So you know you have to understand the culture itself internally and what you're building and what is going to resonate with the people that's why i try to keep my finger on the pulse and try to have as much face time as i can with the staff to get a better understanding of you know where their mindset is and what you know what they really want from a company and a job yeah and you know try to you know uh, put in, you know, a strategy and tactics that uh, 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 really are substantial and aren't symbolic and really, you know, 
signal to the people like, yo, we're invested in you. Um, and taking that people first approach in an authentic way that's going to create substantial impact on people has been my my approach my whole career. And uh, it's, you know, it doesn't hurt that, you know, you have someone who align, you know, who's in charge of culture, who uh, whose personal values and personality aligns with what the company represents externally and being able, you know, when I got here, I had a vision of what it was like to work at Complex and it wasn't that. So yeah, I just made it that, you know what I mean? And it just so happened it aligned with what the people wanted. So, but the, you know, the secret in it, in, in building a good culture is being transparent with people, man. Um, don't sell people wolf tickets. Be honest with people, even if it's not what they want to hear. You know, people tend to appreciate the honesty because they just been lied to and jerked around at other companies or, you know, other uh, employers that are just selling wolf tickets just to retain people. But then all you do is cause more disgruntled, uh, you know, behavior because you're not delivering on what you promise people. So being you know being honest and saying hey man this is what we can do these are the benefits and these are the drawbacks and you know it is what it is um that level of honesty man is be surprised how far you can go with it i feel that i i love how you actually go about like running the organization and even if it's just the culture aspect or it's just the recruiting aspect or anything like that you put your own twist on it and you're not afraid to kind of be you at the end of the day and i love that even the organization allows you to be you at the end of the day yeah Um, something i'm I'm only empowered to do what i can only do what i'm empowered to do right and you know that authenticity is, you know, Rich is an authentic person and he's the head of this organization, right? And he's empowered me to not just be myself, but build a culture throughout the entire organization that emphasizes authenticity and individuality because that's where what true diversity is, right? Yeah. True diversity isn't just, uh, this is a numbers game. We have to check off boxes because of race. It's about empowering people from all walks of life to have equity in the company and have a voice and have some uh some modicum of influence in what the company does and in order to do that you have to build a culture where people feel comfortable being themselves um and i try to embody that and people see me you know and they're like wow if jay can do that and he's the evp here like you know, they feel more comfortable being themselves as well. It, but it is a fine line, too, because you always have to maintain professionalism, too. It's not like, you know, this is still a office and it's still a job. So it's not like you come to work wearing a fuck you T-shirt. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, be yourself, but also yeah, yeah. maintain that level of respect and professionalism. I think you can do both. And I try to walk that line every day. I feel that there's there's something else you hit on the it, when you first started and you you mentioned FaceTime um, with the organization. And I feel like a lot of higher level employees, C-suites, EVPs in the world, um, they get to that level and they forget about something as simple as FaceTime. Can you go into that a little bit more and why you think it's so important? I, I think it's important because if you don't have a connection with the people, you're going to be out of touch. Um I will say that, you know, I I had this conversation with a colleague of mine who runs a much larger organization. And, you know, depending on the size of your company, that that it's a possibility, a possibility that that can't be feasible. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I'm running a company of 350 people. It is a lot easier for me to know everybody's name or most of the people's name and have some FaceTime, you know, some one-on-one FaceTime. But when you're running a uh, company of 10,000, 100,000 people, that's almost impossible. It is impossible, right? So, you know, I don't think I would ever be suited. I'm honest with myself. I'm my own worst critic and I'm hyper self-aware. 
I don't, I, my approach to HR probably would not work at a large organization. That's why I wouldn't want to work for a Microsoft or something like that. Um, I think I'm most effective when I, you know, at mid-level companies that uh, allow me to take that approach and show people that HR isn't just some ominous figure that you see when you're getting fired. Um, it, but it is, uh, you know, admittedly a much harder thing to do because when you're at an organization that has 10,000 people, everybody in HR has to take that same approach. And it's really hard to manage when you have a team of 40 HR professionals, right? Um, and having that same mentality. But, you know, we have, a, you know, a, a team of about, you know, eight or nine people here. And it, it's much easier to ingrain that in them. I feel that. I love that. And like, like you said, like it, it, it can't be everything that you're doing can't be directly um, just taken and put implemented into a company like Microsoft or let's throw out Northwestern Mutual or anything like that. But the fact that you know that is something that um, is almost undervalued because I, I feel like a lot of people would say, well, get to the point that you are and say, okay, if it works here, it can work anywhere. And knowing that you, it, it, it might not work at a Microsoft or even at a, a little bit bigger of a company than complex. It's, it, it's, it's cool that you're aware of like what, how successful your, your plan and everything like that can be at different organizations. Yeah. I mean, you just, uh, you can replicate it to an extent, but not, you know, it can't be a one for one, right? You can have some of the same philosophies in place um but when you're at that scale you know especially at the head of a department like hr you're more focused on organizational strategy than you know that's that's what they're paying you for right um yeah. you know organizational strategy compliance those sort of things are what keeps you up at night versus building interpersonal relationships with lower level staff members. Um, and, you know, it's not something that really appeals to me. I can do it, you know, um, but I, I get much more enjoyment out of the approach that I am taking. I love it. I love it. And you, you also mentioned something about uh, diversity. And obviously in a company the size of Complex, you have to be very... Um, very, very transparent as in, in hiring and everything like that. How, what is, do you guys have a plan for um, a buzz, a buzz phrase like diversity inclusion, or uh, do you focus on one point of that? Well, I mean, we, uh, when I got here, one of the first things that I did in my first six months was build a internal committee, diversity committee <clears throat> and implement uh, ERGs, employee resource groups, um, within the company so that we as a company and uh, going back to giving people equity, we as a company can come up with a, a diversity strategy uh, and I can get the input of everybody involved to just so that we all agree on the right approach and make it more of a democracy versus a, you know, uh, me dictating what the strategy is. Um, and it's been pretty successful. I think we're one of the most diverse companies, uh, media companies of our size. Uh, and I always strive for better, but um, we are in a pretty good spot. And uh, we are trying to do even more and, you know, start partnering with uh, uh, organizations that, uh, you know, especially when it comes to inner city youth partnering with those organizations so that we can start building a talent pipeline of uh, youth, a diverse youth, uh, and start building a, what I like to call a farm system so that we can start growing our own talent internally versus having to attract external diverse uh, talent. Um, it's one of, it's one of, one of the reasons why I structured our internship and fellowship programs the way I did so that 
we don't have to rely on okay the the market for diverse candidates in a certain industry a uh, certain vertical um is thin well instead of relying on that market uh to produce candidates for us why don't we start growing our own talent grooming them teaching them our way of doing things and start building our own pipeline um and we've already produced results and it's only been one year but from our internship and fellowship program we've hired uh several uh people into full-time roles already and that's that pipeline is starting to pay dividends so having the right strategy in place uh when it comes to diversity making sure that it is a um a uh strategy that is equitable and inclusive of everyone who is passionate about it internally um and uh making sure that you have the right strategy for recruiting and uh, people management and talent attraction. I love it. There's, there's so many things on DNI that um, people, it, like I said before, it, it's almost a buzz frame at this point. And we chatted about this over uh, lunch. The fact that there's something that is always missed when it comes to the term diversity inclusion, uh, which is equity, um, I think you brought that up and in, in, in including and in, in making everything equitable within the company. Um, I think that's something that you're putting your 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 first your best foot forward, and it's it's obviously paying dividends on the back end. Um, would you say that the program that you're you're you've put together um, the farm system, uh, so to speak? Would you say that's your proudest accomplishment in regards to your your time so far at Complex? Uh, it's definitely up there. We've um, you know we've accomplished a lot. Uh, you know while I've been here, you know aside from that, we've uh, uh, established uh, fertility benefits uh, that go above and beyond what our uh, health insurance offers um, because you know. Again, listening to the people, understanding what the need is, what the want is, that was something that was in high demand. And it seemed like an easy fix for us. We're looking at um, mental health options right now so that we can have an added benefit for our staff. Um, awesome. You know, uh, I'm, I'm proud of the totality of what we've accomplished so far, but I'm also someone who's never satisfied and never tries to just get comfortable. So I'm always striving um, and trying to do better. I'm, I, I, I don't, I'm not the type to sit back and say, wow, that was an amazing accomplishment. Like, I'm like, okay, what can, what else can we do? I'm always thinking that way. Um, uh, which sometimes isn't healthy, but you know, it's what, <laughs> drives me and keeps me moving forward and i think makes me effective that's awesome i think what what's really cool about your position is that you're we mentioned earlier you have 350 full-time staff but then you work with so many seasonal and freelancer and contractors and all these different people that you work with with uh different different events that you guys put on and stuff like that what's um obviously with ComplexCon, you guys are are doing a ton with that what's the the hardest thing when it comes to managing all these people um, on a freelance basis and everything like that? Uh, logistics, the ever-changing laws, being in compliance, you know, um, you know, there were recent laws passed in California that makes it a little bit harder to engage uh, freelance uh, writers. Um, you know, being aware of all the laws in different cities, because especially when you're traveling and you're, you're doing events in different cities like Long Beach, like Chicago and elsewhere, making sure that you are really in tune with the local laws um, and making sure that you are compliant with those laws is probably the hardest part of it. And then getting the right people in place in, you know, in those uh, local <coughs> talent, <clears throat> excuse me, talent markets to execute. Um, it is a little bit of a nightmare, but, um, <laughs> sure. uh, you know, we've 
done uh, um, complex comps since 2016 now, um, and we have it down to a science, I would say. Um, I'm not going to give away the secret sauce, but uh, <laughs> we've, we've been able to execute at a high level, and I'm really proud of everybody. That's awesome. So let's get into you a little bit more instead of talking about your position so much. So uh, you're from Brooklyn. How, how, is that, how has that shaped you? Oh, man, it means everything to me, man. It, it's taught me a lot of life lessons, man, valuable things that, you know, especially growing up in the era that I grew up in, you had to grow up quick. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I learned things at a very young age that people, you know, sometimes they'll go, will go their whole lives not learning. So, uh, or seeing or experiencing. So, um, you know, uh, had a rough upbringing, but you know, I, in a way I don't, uh, regret it because it kind of made me who I am. And I have this saying, you know, uh, I'm built for the struggle. Right. So it, it, I like that. it taught me how to persevere through adversity and just power through between that and the military. Like it really shaped and prepared me for being able to handle any problem that comes my way. So, um, but you know, I, I rep Brooklyn hard. Like I'm a huge Brooklyn Nets fan. You know, my, my Instagram handles Jay Flatbush. Like it, it embodies everything I do, even though I'm priced, they priced me out and I live in Jamaica Queens now, but, um, <laughs> I'm trying to move back. Uh, my lease ends in a few months. So I'm, I've been on Zillow heavy. Okay, okay. <laughs> and I can't believe the rent prices. I was like, damn, back in the nineties, this was like five hundred dollars. Y'all trying to get me for four stacks? Come on. <laughs> oh man, that's crazy. I, I love hearing like how where people grow up really shapes them. And I've heard nothing but good things like just from people and seen nothing but good things from people gr growing up in Brooklyn in the 90s and even uh, in the early 2000s and everything like that. And just seeing how 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 much different things have changed from oh, yeah. um, the way that I mean, I was just in Brooklyn and I'm sure where I stayed um, was not the, the best part of town. And now like now it's just this I, honestly, this bougie part of town that uh, I was right down the street, obviously from the Barclays Center. So it wasn't that in the 90s. And just seeing how much things have changed is so cool to me. Uh, and just hearing those stories, I, I, I like I get into trouble a little bit, but I like just to pick people's brains. So I'll just go into different different stores and, and stuff like that. And um, my girlfriend doesn't like it. I was just in Atlanta and I did the same thing. I was just like, I'm going to stop into like, I'm just going to try to talk to people and see what this place used to be. And it, it, it like those are the stories that I seek out because I'd like to to hear um, how how much things have changed, but like how much that 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 time period and how much that everything has changed has shaped the person. So that's so dope. Yo, so I, I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, uh, in late 80s, early 90s. You know, I, that that was my era through, throughout the 90s. But, like, that that was the era that really shaped me. And that was the crack era, man. And, yeah. you know, I, I we used to joke. We used to call my, my uh, apartment building the Walmart of drugs because – on every floor, you can get a different. Like I, I lived on the sixth floor, right next to the the weed dealer, and growing up, like all you hear was people knocking on the door. Like I grew up with just drug deals in my ear every fucking day, man. Wow. Um, and on the fifth floor, that's where you got your heroin. On the fourth floor, that's where you got your crack. Third floor was the coke. Like it literally was a drug on every floor that you can go and cop. Um, and like, it was really fucking bad, man. Like people used to get murdered in my neighborhood, like at, at least once a week, man. Like, and you know, going from that to the, you know, now I see the neighborhood and it's gentrified and they're charging obscene amount of rent. And I do think that there are, it's starting to lose a little a little bit of its heart and soul and heritage. Like, obviously, you don't want to 
recreate the fucking crack era, but at the right. same time, um, gentrification has swung the pendulum too far to where it does it doesn't feel like a neighborhood anymore. Almost, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it it has lost all the charm and qualities that made it what it was. But um, it it is a little stunning to see where it was and what it is now. That's crazy. Like I, I think I, I mentioned this to you before, but like my family is from uh, Chicago, and the the more we talk, like the more I get down and start talking to people, they always ask me like, "Where's your family from in Chicago?" And the area is called Humble Park, and it's known as Little Puerto Rico in the city. Like they have flags all over the park. Like to this to date, like they still have this huge flag over Division Street, just a huge Puerto Rican flag. And now there's a a huge push of gentrification to the point that they want to take down the flag. And it's just like, wow, like that's like, I don't like seeing that much. Like I, I love seeing like that used to be like, there was times I used to like be dropped off at my aunt's house and we couldn't go outside type thing until my dad got home to t bring us to the car type thing. And now, um, there's so much gentrification going on that obviously it's great that there's no drug dealers, there's no shootings, there's no gangs or anything like that, but it's crazy seeing it get to the point that they want to take away the heritage, right? The, the, like you said before, like the soul of where we, that neighborhood came from. Yeah, man. Everything can't be a fucking artisan coffee shop selling fucking <laughs> scones and shit. Like, yo, like, I miss the mom and pop shops that, you know, used to be around the hood. I miss the bodega, like the real bodegas. And yeah, the, I saw this Instagram meme. I think it was yesterday, the day before my wife sent me where they had this like really gentrified bodega and it was more like a supermarket, but it said bodega uh, on the front. <laughs> I'm like, damn, son. Like, <laughs> damn. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. We we were actually talking. Um, I was talking to a nonprofit leader here in town. Her name's Sarah Dahlhausen, and she started a uh, hip hop nonprofit here in town called True School, where they um, they really just embrace the hip hop, obviously the music, but then they embrace the um, the arts. Which in the early two thousands and nineties, when she started it, it was um, graffiti art. And she she really wanted wall art that ended up being uh, graffiti art all over the, the city. And now or back in the day, nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted art anywhere. And now there's this huge push. She's now she left true school. But now there's this huge push of getting Milwaukee uh, to to put art everywhere. And she just can't see she she can't believe the shift because now Milwaukee is getting gentrified and there's, for lack of better terms, there's more white people moving in. But she said, where's the, where there's no soul going into some of that art. So like the real true Milwaukee artist isn't there. They're bringing in people from LA, New York, Chicago, but they're not showing off the real community. And that's where the gentrification really like loses its lust. Um, and it, it, it kind of sucks. Like I, I talked to a developer on this very same podcast who develops a ton in Milwaukee. And I was like, how do we, how do we move away from the gentrification? And he was saying about rent control, everything like that, which I get, but like, I feel like even like in, in Milwaukee that there's not too many people paying two grand for two grand for rent. And, um, while that might, I mean, there's a lot of people from New York who end up coming here that. Um, I, I meet with, they're like, damn, that's cheap. Um, but like it, it, in Milwaukee, it, it, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's just crazy how everything has changed to a point, but, um, but you know what it is? It's also like, there's a predatory aspect to this, right? So, you know, I was talking to yesterday, I had a conversation with someone who's running for a local, uh, office in Flatbush and he has a background in housing and development and, what is happening is you have people that have been in the neighborhood 20, 30, 40 years, right? People are buying those properties. And then what they're doing is they're offering people these lump sums of money. And it happened to me. Um, somebody bought my old building and it just so happens I was looking for a house at yeah. the same time. 
that they bought the building. But they, I had a, a studio apartment for like $600 back in like 2013. Wow. And they offered me 10 grand to leave. And I was like, well, you know, I, I just bought this house. I could fix up the porch. I took the money. But what happens is you have these people who are low income, bordering on poverty. And what they're doing is they're showing them these, you know, seemingly large sums of money, ten, fifteen thousand dollars to them, right? Yeah. In order to get them out so they can jack up the rent four or five times. And these people are seeing this, you know, uh small fortune and they're jumping on it, but there's no education in terms of, okay, what are you giving up? And how are you going to live if you take this money? They're just seeing the money and taking it. Um, and, you know, these, these landlords, they make up the money in about a year and a half, two years. They're not worried about it. Um, but they also don't give a shit as far as, like, you know, placement of the tenants that they're, uh, you know, paying Push money out, to leave. Yeah. Like. You know, they find themselves with the 15, 20 grand, but then a year later when that money's dried up and you're paying double or triple the rent you were paying, a lot of people tend to regret that decision. So um, what, what I spoke to him about is doing some more education around the, you know, the decision behind that and trying to encourage people, you know, to not give in to that initial impulse of like, yo, just let me just jump on this and get this money in debt. Yeah, I feel that, man. It's crazy because uh, my my grandpa uh, back in the day was offered. He had a house um, and they offered him a decent amount of money that he ended up taking. And it set up myself uh, and my my other cousins, obviously my mom and uh, his, her brother and sisters in a, in a good spot. But like immediately as soon as they moved out the next week they're already tearing down the house to put up condos and it was the first condos to be put up on that block that's now full of condos and it, it's crazy because had he held out not saying that he should have but had he held out to even two years ago he was getting probably five times that money absolutely and these you know these uh um real estate developers they understand the market oh yeah and you know Listen, I'm not I'm not a socialist like I'm not going to say, yo, nobody can't make a living. But you also have to, you know, uh, have some sort of moral compass when you're doing these things and educate people uh, so that you're not totally fucking them. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. No. So to get into more into who you are and everything like that, what sh shoot? It was. It was dope, though. <laughs> no, I think, um, obviously, we talk a lot about this on this podcast. We talk about, like, obviously, who you are, what you do, everything like that. But I want to get into more, um, like, who you are as a person in regards to fashion. I know you, you said you rep Brooklyn hard. Um, is there any sneakers that really stand out to you from even when you're growing up to where you are today that really um, define and that you can almost do your go-to uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, it's funny when, you know, especially when you work at Complex, people always ask you sneaker questions. And yeah. the funny thing is my, you know, my favorite sneaker was the Jordan Playoff 8s. Okay. And it's uh, it's a dope shoe. It's not the sexiest shoe. It's not the best designed shoe, but it means the most to me because when I was growing up, I was, you know, I was alive. I was in middle school, I think, uh, when they initially came out. Yeah. Uh, back in, like, 93, 94, something like that. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I'm wearing, like, these pay less da dun da dunts And the <laughs> coolest kid on the bus just copped the brand-new Jordan Playoff 8s. And I remember, like, everybody jocking them and all that. And I'm, like, sitting there. I ain't even going to lie. I was low-key salty. And I said to myself, <laughs> I was like, yo, when I grow up, I'm definitely copping those. Like, I'm going to get some money. 
and I must have owned 10 pairs of that same shoe. Damn. Like, I got one in the box I don't touch now. And every time they get a little beat up, I buy a new pair because <laughs> it reminds me of, it. you know, what I've accomplished thus far. It's like, you know, this is something I worked hard to strive to get, even though it's, you know, in a grand scheme of things, it's a pair of sneakers, right? But it's symbolic to me, man. And it, yeah. it, it means something to me. So, you know, in terms of like, what's my favorite pair i would say that but like my wife just got me uh my birthday's uh coming up this sunday and she got me the travis scott sixes uh which nice. i'm actually, I'm actually wearing right now and um <laughs> yeah man I, I really love this shoe like you know i'm ex-military and it's got like the utility pouch on the side so like i'm fucking with it i, I broke out the uh army camouflage today Ooh. Yeah, I got my army jacket and my hat. I feel like I'm back in basic training right now. Nice. You got the fit going today. <laughs> yeah, every day, son. <laughs> I say fly every day, man. My whole dress code switch. Shout out to Capadonna. But <laughs> yeah, man. You know, I, I listen. You know, when when you grow up not having, you know what I mean? It, yeah you know you you want that feeling of accomplishment right and that's where i think that personal connection with sneakers and polo and you know i was i was telling prance and uh prance low and uh, uh polo pirate who um i was on their podcast recently but i was telling them like yo you know they're part of low lives right and i grew up like you know they're a little older than me and i grew up and these were like the flyest cats in the hood yeah and like I, it's the same thing with them Jordan 8s. I was like, yo, damn, when I grow up, yo, I'm definitely copping mad polo. And I'll be damned if I don't have, like, a huge fucking collection right now that my wife yells at me about every day. But, <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I'm an actual polo collector now. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it's, again, that feeling of accomplishment, man. Like, yo, I'm going to be the flyest dude every day because, you know... I didn't grow up like dirt, dirt, dirt poor, but you know, I didn't, I had like one Tommy Hilfiger shirt that my pops bought me that I used to rock like three days a week. This nine, 96 button up Olympic joint that was fly as shit, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I had That's a couple awesome. of pieces here and there, but I ain't grow up like the flyest kid in school and shit. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I had to work for it. So I'm damn sure I'll be the flyest adult. That's awesome. I, I feel that. It's crazy because I, I talk to people up here um, or any really anywhere, and there's some people out there that don't really understand like why people are so into sneakers, but it's the stories like you just told. like That's why people are into sneakers. It's nothing like, yeah, it's about the sneakers, but it's more than just like what you put on your feet. They got a story with them and everything like that, and whether you vibe with the story that come from the actual drop of the shoe, whether it's the, the designer or anything like that, or you have a personal story. That's what, that's what I really like. I really, I mess, I, I really fuck with that. Like that's, that's what I'm like hardcore about. And like, for me, like I've told this story plenty of times on this podcast, but I'm going to tell it again. Um, I had like growing up, I always like, we had, I, I was very, very spoiled because my dad always told me like, Hey, um, I'm going to get you Reebok classics, uh, or some type of Reebok. Cause we live by the Reebok outlet. And, um, like that's what I wore. And I was completely like, I, I was spoiled because I had, I had shoes, right. I couldn't complain about that. But when it came down to, um, like I, I really wanted every, all the kids in my school, I, when it came down to me going to high school, all the kids in my school had on Jordans. And I asked my dad once, I was like, yo, dad, can we not get Reeboks and get some Jordans? And he started laughing at me. <laughs> and I, I was like, all right, well, I always wanted these Jordan uh, fours that my friend had, which turned out to be the breads. And I was like, all right, I, I really need a pair of these bread fours. And um, it, it took until literally last year to get me to buy them. And it was my first purchase. Um, it was my first purchase that I knew I can actually afford after starting my company. 
like my first purchase for me. So like that's why I like those sit in the box at home. And yes, they're creased. Some people don't like to crease their shoes or anything like that. But I like I keep them um, in pristine condition because like I I love that pair. And that's that's the story that I vibe with. And that's a lot. Yeah. You know what? what? I think I think that's what's missing from the sneaker game right now. Like, you know, in like the mid to late 2000s early 2010s i used to camp out heavy son yeah and you know one of the things i always loved about camping out was like yo you got people who are just as passionate as you about the sneak uh about sneakers and everybody got a similar or you know a ill story i should say about like yo you know this is why i got into it or there's, you know, debating about which sneaker is hot and which, you know, which one's better than the other. Like, it reminds me of, like, growing up and being, you know, being in, you know, coming from the era of hip-hop I grew up in. You know, I I almost got into a fist fight about a uh, who was better, J. Ruta Damager or Jay-Z argument. <laughs> like, you know, I was so passionate about J. Ru. Um, I fucking love J. Ru. Um <laughs> You know, and and this was around volume, I think when volume one dropped. Yeah. And uh, just going back and forth. Jay wasn't Jay just yet. You know what I mean? Right. Um, And Jay Ruta Damager, he was, the, you know, he was one of the LSMCs back, you know, at that time. So I like, but being that passionate about something, man, is uh, what I missed about sneakers. And that's why I love working at Complex because you have people here who have that passion yeah. and you can sit there and have those debates and have it intellectually too. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you start talking with like Joe or, or Cal or Frazier or Angel and, you know, they might give you a point of view that will just change the whole way you was thinking about something. You know what I mean? So I, I and I, I fucking love that, man. So, um, you know, again, that's one of the reasons why I love my job, because it, sometimes it feels like I'm recreating those moments from back in the day when I'm having those passionate arguments. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's awesome. Like, and you're you're totally right. Like it, with the up, uptick and obviously digital and how easy it is to buy shoes these days, like there's no more camping out. And my cousin told me this past weekend he was uh, for All Star. He was camped out for Joe Freshgood's uh, New Balance that he dropped. And he said that the the he had never seen, he hadn't seen a line that long in a long time. And he was on the fifth block and everybody on the fourth block got shoes apparently. And um, so he ended up buying them resale. But like he was, it was crazy because it's, it's, it's I think last week in Chicago, it was, it was two degrees, right? And like everybody was still out there. Yeah, like everybody was still out there though camping out not only for Joe Fresh Goods, but they were camping out for all these shoes. And like that's what my my cousin's like, I hadn't kept out in a long time because it's so easy just to buy them online these days. And that's it's it's crazy. Yo, not for nothing, the internet fucked up the shoe game, man. Yeah. Uh it, honestly, between resellers and bots, it's it's a mess, man. Like I don't even try I don't even bother with the sneakers app anymore. It's like <laughs> I got an app on my phone that is just pure fucking disappointment and sadness, man. It's like, <laughs> here's some sneakers you could buy at this price, but nah, you ain't getting nah. them shits. Fuck yeah. out of here. Like, <laughs> nah, to, man. Go to stadium goods real quick. Yeah. Go pay triple, quadruple, man. Get out of here, <laughs> bozo. Like, nah, man. Um, it, it really is disappointing, but, like, you know, I I'd rather pay the retail prices at this point than, you know, having to deal with fucking bots and shit, man. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. My I got my girl. Uh, she downloaded sneakers as well. And she tries to help me on some weekends. And she's never landed anything. And she's like, I don't understand why we do this. We always take the L. Like, why do you keep doing it? It's like, I, I don't know if it's, it's almost like gamifying it. Like, most of the shoes that I do go after, like, I don't most, I don't resell at all. And if I if if I go after shoes, I want it. I want them for myself. <laughs> Yo, it's been like I literally. I was looking at the history, you know, 
And I ain't, I haven't won anything in like four fucking years with this app, man. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, man, nothing, zero. <laughs> I haven't hit on a fucking thing, man. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Like even for the, she logged into the, for the off whites this past weekend, she logged in and it had said sold out and it had just dropped. <laughs> yeah, the moment it drops, it's gone. <laughs> It's like that oh, South Park man. meme, you know what I mean? With the fucking yeah. banker, like, and it's gone. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I feel that. Yo, if oh. you take away anything from this podcast, just fuck the sneakers app, all right? I'm going to snippet just that right there. Absolutely. <laughs> fuck the sneakers app. Let that be the promo, the, the promo snippet. Oh, gosh, that might be the title. Word. Fuck it. <laughs> oh, man. But no, dude, like, what? I, I gotta ask before we I, I let you go, but we asked this question to everybody on the podcast. Um, and if you need clarification, let me know. But I gotta ask you, what makes you strange on purpose? Oh man, I've always been somebody that marched some beat of my own drummer, man. Like, you know, I, I've you know, I've never really followed the crowd or you guys anybody I grew up with, man. Um, you know, when, when gangs was popping off in New York, I was like, nah, fuck that shit. I'm just Rodolo. Like I, I, you know, when everybody was on Jay-Z, I was on J Rue the Damager. You know what I mean? Like, right. I always tried to do my own thing and march to the beat of my own drummer, man, and do what I feel is right. And what, what I fuck with and not necessarily, and if it aligns with everybody else is fucking with cool. If it doesn't, I don't give a fuck. Like, yeah. you know, I, I I just try to do me, man. And, you know, and, and being myself, that's purposeful. You know what I mean? And if it's strange to some people, some people might find it, you know, appealing to others. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just life advice in general, man. Don't live your life to be making anybody else happy or to conform, man. Do what makes you happy, man, no matter what it is. And... You know, whatever you when you find that happiness, man, just latch on to it, man, and fuck what everybody else think. I love it. I love it. Well, Jay, I appreciate you jumping on the Strange on Purpose podcast today. Uh, last, actually, I do have one more question. Where can every anybody find you? Oh, Jay Flatbush on Twitter and, and Instagram, man. J a y Flatbush. Um, and, you know, for all my career seekers, you know, LinkedIn is probably the best place to go if you're trying to get a job, if you just want to talk shit, Twitter. <laughs> um, and if you want to admire my photos, Instagram. You know, I was actually looking at my Instagram and, you know, I be taking some depressing ass photos sometimes, man. It looks <laughs> it looks like, you know, it's an in memoriam for, for Jay Flatbush. I'm like, damn. I got to lighten the fuck up, man. <laughs> you got to smile a little bit. Word, right? Everything can't be a fucking ice grill. That's that Brooklyn in me, son. Yeah, that is. That is. Word. Well, bro. I appreciate you, bro. Uh, Absolutely, I'll you for a man. second after, but I appreciate you. Absolutely, brother. Take care.